I thought I would look at some parables in the coming weeks, maybe months, depending on how many we are able to look at. And tonight we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at the parable of the hidden treasure. So uh, if you see in verse 44, just one verse, uh, but I'll also read verse 45 and 46 as it's a similar parable. We looked at the parable of the net last um, Lord's Day morning. So we're just going to go back a little bit to the uh, context before. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let us uh, commit these words to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words and ask that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and that hearts would be softened and not hardened, and that Christ would be present in our midst and in our affections. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's... Uh, only recent years, I think I'm starting to appreciate how I haven't always understood parables very well. And I think scholars are and good theologians starting to make headway on uh, the parables. In fact, it's interesting thing to me that over the course of church history, at different ages in church history, you get certain insights that are quite profound and not every age yields the same types of insights. So the doctrine of justification by faith. It was present before the Reformation, but the Reformation really uh, helped us understand the doctrine with a great deal of clarity, and that was roughly 1,500 years uh, in the life of the church, and that's quite something when you think about it. Uh, the book of Revelation is, is basically 20th century, where the church started to wrap its mind around all of the details of how the Old Testament is the key to understanding Revelation. And uh, if you look at commentaries uh, in the 1600s on the book of Revelation, it's an absolute mess. And uh, I say that with the greatest affection for Tommy Goodwin, a good friend of mine who wrote uh, several chapters of commentary on the book of Revelation. And it's it's just uh, insanity uh, because you have someone with a wrong way of trying to understand it coming up with all of the dates of a thousand years, 666 years, and somehow the thousand years and the 666 come together. And imagine living in the year 1666 when you can do all sorts of uh, numbers and come up with interesting things. Uh, The doctrine of parables actually in, I would say, the last a uh, few decades has really start to unfold in terms of its significance. Now that may alarm you. You know, have we been completely misunderstanding the parables in the life of the church? Not quite, but I do think things are a little bit more uh, profound than even we had realized. So 
in the case of the parables, the first thing you need to understand about parables is that they are, uh, as we saw last week and uh, I've said before, they are both um, parables of salvation and judgment. They're meant to confound listeners who are not on the inside. They are meant to uh, confuse many of Christ's hearers, and then they are meant to uh, reveal secrets about the kingdom to those who do have ears to hear. So when you get to the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, for example, you will notice the purpose of the parables right after the parable of the sower in verse 10. And he says to his disciples after they say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them on the outside, though he's speaking about religious people, to them it has not been given. And then as you keep on reading down, notice in verse 14, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, The point that I'm trying to make is that that is a quote from Isaiah when he began his ministry to Israel. And Isaiah was told to go and preach a message where they would hear but not understand, where they would see but not perceive. And Isaiah was flummoxed at this. How could this be, Lord? But that was his ministry. And Jesus is now quoting from Isaiah in a similar way. He has a ministry to the Israelites and yet a large part of that ministry will be their hardening, their deadening, their judgment. And when you start to see that, the parables start to take on a slightly different feel. And what I want to do tonight is to try and bring out that there is what I think a dual focus in this parable and that the usual interpretation, while not wrong, misses the broader biblical picture. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this is a parable in verse 44 of a hidden treasure. And I suppose some of you are probably the types where uh, in another life or maybe in this life, you would like to be a treasure hunter. Maybe you've even done research on treasure hunters. There are uh, people in the United States who are treasure hunters, and I mean serious treasure hunters. They're using technology like Google Earth, but with sophisticated computers and finding things. Uh, There's a guy called Nathan Smith years ago who uh, claimed to have found some lost ship that's on a property and he's trying to get at it and it went to court and all sorts of things happened. And um, I'm sure maybe some of you know Uh, more interesting stories about the nature of treasure hunters and what these people are like. Uh, I have no interest whatsoever in uh, hunting for treasure. Uh, I have enough of that at home in my office in the form of red bottles of wine. (laughs) Uh, I'm a very simple person. (laughs) But there are people that are treasure hunters, and uh, it's, as I said, a very a vibrant business in the United States and probably the rest of the world. Now, in the first century, this was very important because people uh, did not have 
as you know, banks. And uh, of course, some of you are already thinking, well, Mark, even the banks aren't safe. And let's not get too carried away now with those types of comments. We do have banks. And I generally feel like if I have $100 in my bank account, uh, I can go there and be sure to take out the money and it'll be there and it'll be a normal interaction. I can keep uh, money in the bank and it will be safe. In the first century, they didn't have banks like that. There was no digital currency. And again, let us not get distracted by digital currency and cashless society. Uh, It's hard to mention anything these days without people going, yes, and that is a big problem today, isn't it? Um, I'm just trying to make a simple point. People didn't have credit cards. They didn't have banks. They would hide their treasures in places where they wouldn't be found by people who would go around looking for these types of treasures. Now, Jesus uses this illustration because it would have been a well-understood illustration in many respects to his hearers. But there is a catch. And what is the catch? Well, we have to ask ourselves, who is the treasure hunter? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Who is the treasure hunter? And most uh, commentators and Christians over the course of Christian history have said that it is the Christian who has had his eyes open to what the gospel forsakes everything in order to have Christ. I think we can say that's been the usual interpretation, and it's not altogether wrong. However, it is not altogether correct. Now, I want you to be very careful in understanding what I'm saying. It is not altogether wrong. I'm not saying that that is not a reality in the Christian life. What I am saying is I don't think that that is the most fundamental reality that Christ is speaking about. Now, hopefully that's enough for you to be like perked up a little on a weary Sunday evening and thinking, all right, let's have it then. Well, that's my job, to let you have it. And uh, I trust that you'll be hopefully convinced by the end that this is actually a very profound and beautiful illustration of the great reality of the Scriptures. Now, who then is the treasure hunter? Well, I believe that the treasure hunter is God. It is God, and the treasure that he is hunting is the possession who are his people. And once you understand that, I think this parable can come alive. Now, does the scripture give us warrant for saying that the people of God are his treasure? And I think you can look in the Old Testament, you can look in the New Testament and find actually that's very much a powerful analogy that is used in Scripture of who God's people are. So going back to Exodus chapter 19 verses 4 and onwards, you don't need to turn there, but we read, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So one of the most fundamental realities the Israelites understood at their conception as the people of God is that in this world, in this world, God has a treasured possession and the treasured possession are His people. And they would have read this as as believers, those who were believers in the first century, they would have known this to be true. They are God's treasured possession. And so those who are hearing the parable of the hidden treasure, when they hear the language of a possession and treasure, it's not without thinking that they would immediately think about a passage like Exodus chapter 19. We read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and Scott brought out that there is a certain theme in that chapter, and that chapter does have the theme of striking at the root of sin. But notice that in verses 6 to 9, the same analogy is brought out. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And as you keep on reading, he illustrates what it means to them to be his treasured possession. Now, what ends up happening in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, nothing fundamentally changes. Although there are a little bit of shifts that happen, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But then Peter, writing to those who are scattered throughout Pontus, Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and so on, makes this comment about these new covenant Christians in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of this language comes from the Old Testament describing the people of God to which he is now referring to these Christians. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter makes this point about these Christians that Christians are God's possession. Paul does the same thing if you want to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is writing and uh, picking up at verse 11, speaking about salvation. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ's death purchases what? A people for his own possession. So the first point, are the people the treasure of God? And the answer as far as Scripture is concerned is that this is a major theme both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are the possession, the treasured possession of God. We are the pupil of God's eye. Uh, Hebrew scholars have, you know how we've heard about the apple of one's eye, and in Scripture you see this phrase, the apple of his eye. Actually, it's more the pupil 
of his eye. And God is very protective over the pupil of his eye. If you were to uh, try this on your way out, some of you have had the effrontery to uh, shake my hand and say hello friend to me lately. Uh, did you do that today, Daniel? Yes, I believe you did, which I returned uh, out of this. Uh, my enemy, I says, hello brother. You see, uh, I was kind to him even though he was so unkind to me. Um, but the point that I'm making is that if Daniel were to walk out tonight and I were to actually have a moment of uh, change in my heart and poke him in the eyeball, and right in the pupil, he would immediately strike out. It's just the thing that happens. Poke someone in the eye and see what happens. That's uh, uh, maybe something we should be very careful about stating from the pulpit, but uh, it's a natural instinct. And when you poke God in the pupil, He will always strike out because we are His treasured possession. God has bypassed many, many peoples in order to have his treasured possession, the church, both in the old and the new. So that's the first point. Are we the treasured possession of God in Scripture? Yes. Now, does God hide the treasure until he pays the price? Going back to the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And it doesn't say, and the man takes it and enjoys a happy life. No, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, we read earlier in Titus chapter 2 that Christ died to purchase a treasured possession, a people for himself. That was the point of his death. And when you look at various passages like Ephesians chapter 3, you will see that there's a sense in which the church was hidden. It was a mystery until the price had been paid. So if you want to turn, you can to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul begins in verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The point is that with the death and resurrection of Christ, the new covenant unfolds all of the mysteries of the gospel that were once hidden. And that word that Paul uses there, mystery, is a word that Paul is fond of. And a mystery, mysterion, is usually in context something that was once concealed but has now been revealed. 
And when you have that understanding, as we find in Ephesians and other places, of the people of God, namely the Gentiles who are brought into the covenant as someone, people who were once concealed in God's purposes but have now been revealed, it starts to make sense of the parable that a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the final question we have to ask ourselves is this. Has God given everything to possess this treasure? And this is why I think this parable makes more sense in light of God than it does of you. Let me say this with the greatest fondness to myself first and then to you. I don't really believe that anyone sitting here can say that they have given everything, everything, in the way that this parable describes. Now, what does the parable say? The parable says he sells all that he has and buys that field. The point of a parable is it's supposed to be shocking. And this doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense in a certain way. I think there are a number of you here who would never ever do something like this. You wouldn't. You'd find it far too risky because what if you were wrong about the treasure and you go and sell everything you have and you buy this field and then all of a sudden you realize that the treasure somehow, once you were going and selling everything, was found by someone else or that you find the treasure, it wasn't worth as much and so on and so forth. Some of you would never ever do this. It's actually quite shocking to think someone would do this. I'm actually a bit of a risk taker. And that happens in every realm of life. If I think there's a shortcut, I'm going to take it. I've got lost on runs before because I've tried to take shortcuts and it's taken me ages because I was horribly wrong. But even I, as a risk taker, find this to be a little bit absurd if I really think about it. Would I ever sell everything that I have? I might sell a lot of things in order, but I'd leave a little bit back behind in case something went wrong. This person who is doing this seems to be a little bit insane. That's the truth. Now the question is, has God given everything to possess this treasure? And in giving everything, does it actually seem a little bit insane what God has actually gone through to possess this treasure? Think about it. God is going to not spare His only begotten Son so that He might have the treasure, namely you and me. That He's going to give up everything That is, he is going to allow his son to come into this world and die in the worst possible way to be crucified so that he might have this treasure. And that's the real point of the gospel. And that's why this would have been such an affrontery to those hearing when they find out what it really means that Yahweh That the God of Israel is going to send His Son, the Messiah, into the world to die. That He's going to give up everything that He has in order to have a treasured possession comprising of both Jews and Gentiles. That makes no sense. And yet that's why this parable is true first and foremost of God. That God is the one And you find this in Scripture, whether God or Christ, God is always the one who leads by example. 
that if you're going to say who has really given up everything in order to have this treasured possession in a way that defies logic, it's God. It's not you first and foremost. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't then look at the example given to us in this parable and think about how you can make sacrifices for the kingdom? Of course. But you will never, ever get close to giving up what God has given up in order to possess you because you are now His treasured possession. The kingdom of heaven, as we read this now again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, God's people, which a man, namely God, found and covered up then in his joy goes and sells all that he has. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He sells all that he has and purchases the price. That is, he buys the field. He pays the price for you and for me. And that's the glory of the gospel. That whatever you find is true of you and I in our Christian life is actually most eminently true of what God has done before we have. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your words and we thank You that You have made us Your treasured possession, that we have been revealed in these last days as that possession and that Christ is the one who paid the ultimate price so that we might be found For we were once hidden, lost as it were, and now have been brought into the light as those who are the children of God. We thank you and praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen.